1: You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN.
2: Welcome, I'm Anderson Cooper in New York.
3: And I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta in Atlanta. Welcome to our fourth CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears. Tonight, Dr. Anthony Fauci will be joining us, answering your questions about the pandemic. We also have Bill Gates, whose Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has pledged up to $100 million to fight the coronavirus.
2: Today was a bad day. More people died in America today from the virus than on any other day, and the U.S. now leads the world in the number of reported cases of coronavirus. As Sanjay said, this is our fourth town hall, but this one is very different because we're following the latest safety guidelines from health professionals, as always. Sanjay and I are in separate studios without any crew or others around us, and all of our guests by, are by remote as
3: well. So it's going to look a little different from our other town halls, but as we said last week and then many times before, we're determined to keep reporting the story and bringing you as much knowledge as we can and also answering as many of your questions as we can as well. We still have
2: our social media scroll, which uh, you'll see at the bottom of your screen. So please tweet us your questions with the hashtag CNN town hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. A lot of you have also sent in video questions. We'll get to as many of those as we can. And I know it's a cliche, but we are all in this together. And tonight, we'll also have reports from across the country and around the world, including Europe and uh, in China, where our correspondents are. We start in the U.S., which has seen a significant rise in cases
4: health organization is now warning that the U.S. could become the next global epicenter
0: for the pandemic. Yesterday was the deadliest day by far. The death rate is rising here. The situation so severe, the White House is advising people who visited or passed through New York City to self-quarantine themselves for 14
5: days.
2: One week ago, there were 8,000 confirmed cases in the U.S. Now, there are more than 80,000. And so far, in this country, more than 1,100 people have died.
6: This week, it's going to get bad. And uh, we really need to come together as a nation.
2: At least 177 million Americans are under stay-at-home orders, which is more than half the population. New York remains the epicenter in the US, with more than 30,000 cases in this state, more than 18,000 in New York City alone. The enormous Javits Convention Center is being turned into a field hospital with 1,000 beds. Still not enough, according to officials, with the number of patients they're expecting. But there is a sign of hope. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says the stay-at-home measures he enacted seem to be working.
5: That is almost too good to be true. Uh,
6: But the theory is, given the density that we're dealing with, It spreads very quickly, but if you reduce the density, you can reduce the spread very quickly.
2: The 15-day period of social distancing recommended by the White House Task Force comes to an end early next week. But scientists still can't say when they think the virus might be under control in this country.
5: You've got to be realistic, and you've got to understand that you don't make the timeline. The virus makes the timeline.
2: The virus makes the timeline. As I mentioned at the top, there are two grim milestones today that we reached. Sanjay, as you know, it's the deadliest day on record in the U.S. for the virus. The number's gone up since I recorded that report. The number of new deaths just today now at least 248. That's a record and in total at least 1,186 deaths from the pandemic in this country. And the second milestone that we learned just before we went on air, the U.S. now has surpassed China in coronavirus cases. We now have more than any other country in the world, 81,836 in the U.S. and sadly rising. And Sanjay, with that in mind, as we've done right here in each of these town halls, I wanna start off just by asking you what do you think is the most important thing that you've learned this week that you didn't know before and the most important thing that we still don't know?
3: Well, we're st- certainly getting an idea, Anderson, of just, just how explosive this growth is. I mean, we, we keep anticipating this, but to see the numbers the first time we did a town hall, Anderson, 60 people were diagnosed and now, you know, close to 90,000. We know that most Americans are settling into this new reality Uh, doing their best to stay home as as much as possible. We also know and and confirm now that younger people can also be very much at risk. I think for a long time the narrative was this was something that just affected the elderly, but 20% of those hospitalized Anderson between the ages of 20 and 44. Something good that we learned this week is that the virus isn't mutating much. That's good because it's not going to become more lethal likely and it's also going to be good for a vaccine if the virus doesn't mutate much. We still don't know when exactly this is going to end. I think that is still the biggest thing that we don't know, uh, and and exactly uh, how, you know, when this pullback, when people are gonna be allowed to go back to work, all we know is it's still weeks away, but there is an end in sight. This isn't uh, gonna last forever, Anderson.
2: Uh, well, again, what we just reported a moment ago, that the U.S. has now passed China for the most reported coronavirus cases. Many believe the the epicenter right now is New York City. want to go to first to Erica Hill, who's at Elmhurst Hospital in New York City, what Mayor Bill de Blasio called the epicenter of the epicenter of the city's outbreak. Erica, what's the latest? Yeah, he
7: did. And there's been a lot of attention paid to this hospital because hospital what we're hearing in terms of accounts medical professionals telling us at CNN earlier today they are bursting at the seams that in terms of how people people are feeling it's a state of panic and one of the ER doctors actually shared what she saw and her account of 72 hours in the ER here with the New York Times here's a little bit of what she had to say
8: I don't have the support that I need.
3: And even just the
8: materials that I need physically to take care of my patients. And it's it's America and we're supposed to be a first world country.
7: Part of what she said is we're told it's all going to be fine. It is not fine here. And the emergency management commissioner for New York agreed with her earlier today, saying Anderson that her account was spot on.
3: And and Erica, you know, you and I were emailing earlier today and you sort of pointed out that it isn't just this one hospital. You've been talking to ER doctors at other hospitals as, as well. And what are they telling you?
7: Basically, everybody coming into the ER now has some sort of coronavirus-related issue. They are not seeing the heart attacks or the people who need stitches, Uh, even the sniffly noses that they used to. He's saying partially that's likely because people are scared to come in. Maybe they're worried about overwhelming the ER as well. He said it's taking a mental, physical, and emotional toll on the staff, everyone from the paramedics all the way through to discharge. And he said what's most important is that we keep repeating the message. Social distancing, wash your hands and take all of
2: that seriously erica hill thanks very much i want to go now to china which is closing its borders to foreigners fearing a second wave of the pandemic david culver is in shanghai for us david so the, the borders will be closed with the fear of a second wave of cases i'm wondering though in places like wuhan as restrictions are loosened in various places that are hit by the virus are there any signs that infected people who are asymptomatic are
9: potentially spreading the virus still This is a huge concern, Anderson, because when you look at the numbers and the numbers have been in question for several weeks now since the reporting started because of the source of all of this, the numbers being sourced from the National Health Commission, that is the Chinese government. So with regards to potential asymptomatic cases, they do believe those could be pretty active within the the Wuhan area and even Hubei province and even really other parts of mainland China. The issue is those aren't officially counted towards the total number. So as you start to ease restrictions, and you mentioned in, in Wuhan that's gonna happen in about two weeks time, already in other parts of Hubei, they've started to ease those, what some have described as brutal lockdown conditions. You're gonna have people moving around again. You're gonna have people starting to resume life Will that then cause the numbers to go back up? It's something that they're very mindful of here, and really quite hesitant of. Even the residents that we've spoken with Anderson have, quite frankly, told us, you know, as soon as the, the gates open, so to speak, they're in no rush to get out of their homes after seventy-plus days of lockdown.
3: Yeah, and, and David, you know, I mean, I think the timeline's so important here because people are looking to China to get an idea of what it might be like here in the United States, and for the first time now, I guess, since the crisis began in Hubei. 10 weeks or so of, of lockdown. Some of those restrictions are being lifted. So, so what are the authorities expecting to happen here? How is it going to return to normal?
9: I, I think part of their expectation is to rely on that hesitation from some of the residents right Mm -hmm. they don't want to get complacent they don't want to think that they've got this beat and residents that we've spoken with sanjay have told me quite frankly that you know they're gonna watch to see how things unfold yeah they want to get back to life one young woman telling me she wants to get to starbucks she wants to get to mcdonald's but at the same time she doesn't fully trust that things are fully under control uh, that being said, you do see already extreme cleansing of some of the public transit, you see buses being sanitized, you see actions being taken to prepare for this, and the other big concern is going to be imported cases, which is why they've now essentially banned all foreign travelers into China, into mainland China. I mean, you go back a few weeks, Sanjay, and it was the rest of the world that was really concerned with travelers coming from China, now it's China really worried about travelers coming from every other country. So that's why they've mm. taken these extreme steps. Mm. But at the same time, Anderson and Sanjay, I, I think there is some optimism and cautious optimism from the people we've talked to that life may be resuming. It's David,
2: David, thanks very much. Scott McLean joins us now from Spain, which reached another gruesome milestone of its own this week. More than 4,000 deaths, surpassing the death toll of China. Things are so bad in Madrid, an ice rink has been converted into a morgue, and that's where Scott is tonight. So are the new cases still rising there as well as as the deaths?
4: Hey, Anderson, the increases here have been really startling. In just the last 24 hours, more than 650 people have died from this coronavirus. The number of confirmed cases has jumped up by more than 8,500. And to put that in context, that is almost twice as many new cases as were reported in Italy. The health minister has said that there are signs that Spain is starting to enter this period of stabilization, but officials have been optimistic about seeing the peak of this pandemic for quite some time. It's also important to keep in mind that the true number of cases in Spain is likely much, much higher than the official number, and that's because Spain has really struggled to get a handle on the amount of testing that it's doing. It's really struggled to expand the testing beyond the 15 or 20,000 tests that it's doing per day right now. Case in point, officials acknowledged just this morning that a batch of several thousand tests that had been imported from China had to be sent back because they didn't work.
3: Yeah, Scott, you know, uh, as Anderson mentioned, you're standing in front of this, this pretty grim scene here, I guess this ice rink uh, recently converted into a morgue. Is that, is that just for people who've died of uh, COVID-19 or, or other patients as well?
4: only coronavirus patients here, Sanjay. The reason that this ice rink started to be used in the first place is because the city's state-run funeral service stopped picking up the bodies of coronavirus patients mm. because they said that they didn't have enough protective equipment. Now, the issue is more that there simply isn't enough space in the city morgues to store all of these bodies, given the backlog mm. uh, of bodies waiting to be uh, to be buried or to be cremated. And so uh, they have to come somewhere. And obviously, this uh, ice rink is a suitable place for them. The problem is particularly acute here because more than half of all the coronavirus deaths in this country have been here in Madrid.
2: Uh, It's just terrible. Uh, Everyone, uh, thank you. Uh, Stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. Later tonight, Bill Gates joins us. He's been warning about a pandemic like this for a long time. But first, after the break, Dr. Anthony Fauci joins us to answer your questions about the coronavirus. We'll be right back.
1: After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay
4: tuned.
2: And welcome back to the CNN Global Town Hall. Our next guest is Dr. Anthony Fauci. He's a member of the President's Coronavirus Task Force and the Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious
3: Diseases. And he is here to answer your questions, of course, about the coronavirus. Dr. Fauci, welcome. Good to be with you. Thank you very much for your service, sir, I know you're pulling in very long hours. We appreciate it. Let me get right to it. Uh, You've been saying that we should wait for the data to decide whether or not to start pulling back on some of these recommendations and maybe allowing people to go back to work. I've been looking at the data, I know you have as well. It seems pretty clear that the numbers are not only increasing but accelerating in places that had no cases or very few cases last week are now in the thousands. So why, why raise the idea that a pullback is even close, Dr. Fauci?
5: Well, I think that the president was trying to do it. He was making an aspirational uh, projection to give people some hope. But he's listening to us when we say we really gotta reevaluate it in real time and any decision we make has to be based on the data. I mean, you know, the numbers that you showed when you have a situation when the cases today compared to tomorrow is increased dramatically, and then the next day is increased dramatically. That's no time to pull back. That's when you got to hunker down, nail down, mitigate, 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 get the people taken care of. That's what you got to concentrate on. You have to go with the data, Dr. Fauci. As you mentioned, you
2: said the virus makes, makes the timeline. the The notion, though, of of you know people getting back to work in some places, it's sort of based on the idea that. There's hot spots in, in, you know, right now in New York City, California. We've seen Washington. New Orleans seems to be uh, in, in trouble. Uh, and some other places seem to be coming up uh, in terms of cases, but that there's places where they haven't seen so much. Are you confident that the places that haven't had a lot of recorded cases, that that's just not a question of testing? Is it a question of there simply the virus isn't there?
5: Well, it's probably a combination of both, but I think it's more that they have not yet had that kind of escalation that we've seen in cities like New York. And and just a point about those areas that have low levels, like there are about, I think, 19 out of 50 states have 200 cases or less than a state. That's the time. If you're going to do anything in those places, you've got to be very aggressive in identification isolation, contact tracing, when people are infected, get them out of society, put them in a way where they're isolated, and then trace the others. That's all containment. You don't want to get to the point where you have to start mitigating. So what we're talking about is trying to get to the point where we don't allow these issues to come up to the point of needing mitigation. But in order to do that, as I've said, and as Dr. Burks have said, you need to get the data and you need to act on the data. Because if it's escalating, there's no way you want to tone down. You want to be able to suppress what's there while it's at a low level. So you want
2: to see more testing, especially in places where, uh, you know, they have low numbers of cases in order to gather data. I mean, are there people gathering that data? Are they doing the contact tracing in states that have less than 200 cases?
5: Well, you know, today the, 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 uh, the president wrote a letter to the governors talking about sort of a new approach to this kind of uh, county by county, uh, 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 mitigate, not mitigation, but, but contact tracing, where what you actually do is you do testing there. Now, that's gonna be through the public health apparatus, which the CDC has networks that are really for flu surveillance. And you can adapt those networks to be coronavirus ex- uh, uh, surveillance. When you do that, then you could plug in the identification, isolation, and contact tracing. Again, it's going to attempt to do that. I hope they'll be successful, but that's what the plan is, to use that network to do the kind of surveillance we've done with flu.
3: You, you know, Dr. Fauci, so we have, you know, sort of three months' worth of data now, 150 or so countries, I think, where this virus has is, is, uh, been present. At what point do you say we, we have enough data, that we, we really can start to set a timeline? I know you say the, the, the virus will dictate the timeline, but you know, do, do we, we must know a lot more now than we did even a couple of weeks ago.
5: Yeah, we do know a lot more now than we did a couple of weeks ago, but the one thing that's still a little bit of a black box, uh, and that's the thing that influences the modeling that we do is that what is the relative percentage of really asymptomatic Mm. infection? Because that influences everything. That influences transmission, that influences contact tracing, and that certainly influences the dynamita of the models that you use. So if you're going to model how you do things, you really have to have the data of know what you're dealing with. That's why it's so important to do that. Now that we have so many more tests available, we've really got to get out there and do that. Uh, I, I want to get to a viewer questions,
2: but I just want to quickly follow up on the question we were talking about before, which is in those states where it's low, you said you talked about the plan for contact tracing, the, the, the idea of it. Is it actually being
5: done now or is that still something that needs to be increased? It needs to be ratcheted up, Anderson. We can't. We, I mean, we've got to do it better than we are now. Not that we're at fault, that no one's made any mistakes, but they've got to elevate it to the point where when you have someone in society who is infected, you've got to not only identify them, but you've got to be able to isolate them very quickly, not five days later, after they wound up potentially infecting individuals. So we've got to get that system where you identify somebody and as quickly as possible, get them out of a situation where they may infect other people. That's what's called strict containment, and that's what
2: we've got to do. All right, Dr. Fetch, we've got a lot of questions from viewers. Uh, Edward Sabatini in Miami sent in this video, take a look.
4: Hi, I have lupus and I take hydroxychloroquine. I've been taking this medication for three years now. It's the only drug that can help
5: me function on a daily basis. My 90 day supply is up
3: in less than 10 days.
4: My pharmacist Walgreens called me to tell me that they can't fill this prescription for me because this medication is no longer available in the marketplace. They went on to say that they don't expect to receive
3: any more of this medication for the time being. All of this medication is being utilized in New York
4: City for the COVID-19 test. What am I supposed to do when I run out of my medication less than 10 days from now?
5: Dr. Hachi? Yes, I mean, that, that individual has a very good point. And that's the reason why I have said so often that we should be giving drugs for people with diseases that we know it works. And that's really one of those unintended consequences that's a negative consequence, is that when you use the drug for something in which it's not a proven benefit, those individuals who need the drug for a disease for which there is a proven benefit could potentially suffer, the same way the individual that you've just put on the program.
3: And, and, Dr. Fauci, I mean, I, I don't want to make this political, but, I mean, this, this drug was sort of described as a, as a game changer. You understand why people may go out and want to get this drug, pharmacies I've been talking to say they've run out in all their pharmacies. Was, it, was that just a mistake or too premature to present it that way?
5: Right. Uh, Sanjay, I, I'm, I'm not going to pass judgment on that. You know that. that that's, not, that's not really helpful. I can just tell you what I have said all along, and I'll say it again. The evidence that that works is anecdotal. It is not a definitive proof that that drug works,
3: period. Hmm. All right, let's get to another viewer question. Oh, sorry, Anderson. No, no, go ahead. Monica uh, Grenache-Prince in Houston, Texas, uh, sent in this video, let's take a look.
10: Is a sudden loss of smell and taste a symptom of coronavirus? And if so, and the person hasn't experienced any other symptoms, what actions would you recommend they take
3: Dr. Fauci.
5: Well, um, you know, the idea of having an impediment of of the sense of smell is not really unique to any particular viral disease. There are a number of upper, upper respiratory viral diseases in which that occurs. There have been some reports that that's an early sign. There really isn't much you can do about it but it is could be a red flag that if you have other symptoms that you're not sure what they are and you have a decrease in the sense of smell, you might wanna think that's a possibility that it's an early sign of coronavirus disease. So that's something that's been well recognized with other
2: viruses. Um, This uh, next question comes from Larry Heyer in, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina.
4: Is there any mounting data on the effects of spring and summer temperatures And its expected impact on coronavirus and its transmission thank you
5: dr Fauci. that was there's no mounting data
4: yeah yeah well
5: right now i mean the idea the concept that when you're dealing with a respiratory-borne virus that when you get from the cold to the warm weather there's a diminution in spread that is not unreasonable because we see that with influenza And we see that with some of the benign coronaviruses, not obviously the novel coronaviruses. We are hoping, though it may not happen, that we will see that impact of warmer weather on bringing the infection rate down. But you can't guarantee it because this is a brand new virus and it may not act like some of the other respiratory viruses in which often you do see a diminution as the weather gets warmer. There's no guarantee that we're going to see that right now.
3: And if we do, uh, that also means that as the weather co- gets cooler again in the fall and winter, it could come back. Is that right, Dr. Fauci?
5: That's exactly right, uh, Anderson. And that's the reason why at the White House press conference today, I emphasize the importance to push ahead with the development of a vaccine and the development of drugs proven by randomized controlled trial. Because if that happens, you likely will see a, res- a cycling, a seasonal cycling. I would not be surprised, given the efficiency with which this virus spreads, that we will see a cycle.
3: Uh, let's get to another uh, viewer question. Dr. Fauci, Lewis Carson in Mansfield, Texas sent in this video. Take a look.
11: What should or could blood transfusions? From recovered coronavirus patients, be used to potentially aid in the recovery of currently known coronavirus patients. Thank you,
3: Dr. Fauci. I think that's a convalescent hear- serum, right? I think he's talking about. He's yeah, asking about. Right,
5: right. That's exactly correct. And in fact, it would not be the first disease in which you've actually had some success with this. Uh, there are a couple of studies going on. One is convalescent sera. The other is the immune globulin from that sera, And the other is the development of monoclonal antibodies from an individual who might actually have recovered where you actually can clone those B cells and get an unlimited amount of supply. The concept of passive transfer of antibodies is a sound concept that deserves a very serious clinical trial. Uh, this next one is from Emily Mitchell
2: in Charlotte, North Carolina. Let's take a look.
8: I'm 25 and live in North Carolina. My parents are in their 60s and live in Virginia. I recently flew on a plane domestically and I'm still getting over a sinus infection that I had a few weeks ago. They are really insistent on me going home to be with them for this quarantine, but I'm really worried about if I'm a carrier and just don't know it yet. What advice do you have about me going home? And also, how would you recommend talking to older individuals who might not want to think that they're at such a risk?
5: Well, there are a couple of questions there. I mean, first of all, if you have reason to believe that you've been exposed to someone who is infected, then you really should do what we recommend uh, of of virtually anybody. What you should do is that you should isolate yourself for for up to 14 days, call a physician, see if you want to get tested, and if a testing is available, get tested. It sounds like you are at a low risk from what I just heard, but again, I'd want to hear a little bit more about it. With regard to elderly parents, I think you've got to emphasize we have a responsibility in society to protect the vulnerable. And those are the elderly, particularly those with underlying conditions. So if you go home and you have any idea that you might have been exposed, you've got to isolate yourself from your parents, and in fact, the recommendations now, particularly in areas where there's a lot of infection, that individuals who are elderly or with chronic conditions that are compromising them, that they should self-isolate and get them away from any possible exposure to someone who might be infected.
3: So regardless of whether uh, she was sick or not, probably at this time, at least for the next few weeks, not visit, you're saying. A lot of people out there thinking about visiting their Uh, parents.
5: Exactly. Uh, that's exactly what I meant. I mean, we, we have, uh, I mean, you're getting on a plane right now, depending upon where you are, you're getting on a plane. I don't want to worry a lot of people to get on planes, but to the extent possible, you should avoid anything but necessary travel. Now, obviously you love your parents and you want to be with your parents, but just think it might be better now to separate yourself from your parents so you don't put them at risk.
3: Good point, Dr. Fauci. You got another question. Siley in uh, Cranberry, New Jersey, sent in this video.
8: Hi, I'm a senior high school student from Plainsboro, New Jersey. My school campus has recently closed and we've moved to online learning because of the current
10: coronavirus pandemic. I wish to become a physician when I am older. I was wondering what I and others like me can do to help medical personnel and others in need that are currently working tirelessly to save people from this virus
3: need some help Dr. fauci
5: Well that <laughs> I, I sure can <laughs> I'll give you some work so I can get some more sleep. <laughs> no, I think there are many ways in, there are many ways in which people like yourself who are altruistic and want to be part of the solution. That you can volunteer, whether you do that from faith based services or what you do. I believe there's a lot of opportunity for people like yourself who want to contribute to volunteer. I mean, the easiest way to do that, I can see it through community services or even faith based services.
2: Uh, Dr. Fauci, as always, uh, we appreciate your time. We know how busy you are. Uh, Please uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Some rest. good to be with you,
3: Anderson and Sanjay.
2: Just ahead, what the chairman of the Federal Reserve says about a recession and your questions about the frightening economic impact of the pandemic.
1: After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
2: Welcome back to our fourth coronavirus uh, town hall. You still have our social media scroll at the bottom of the screen. You can tweet your questions with the hashtag CNN town hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. The clearest signal, the crushing economic impact of the virus came today when initial claims for unemployment ballooned to more than three million. That's the highest initial claims in the nation's history. So just think about that for a moment. Highest in the history of the country. Mm. In a week's time, and the chairman of the Federal Reserve says the United States may already be in a recession. Joining us now, CNN's business editor at large, Richard Quest, he's ready to answer your questions. So Richard, I mean, hard to underscore the economic fallout that's already occurred because of this.
12: Absolutely. That 3.3 million number tells its own tale. And it could get a great deal worse as this rolls across the rest of the country. Uh, I was looking at some economic forecasts. J.P. Morgan think that unemployment will top out at about 8.5 percent. Remember, we ended last year at 3.5 percent. Oxford Economics say it could be 10 percent that will be unemployed. But it's although this is horrific, it, you have to remember why it's happened. It's because the economy has been artificially poor. So a lot of these jobs will come back when the economy gets going again. The, the issue, of course, is that the economy needs to stay paused while the virus uh, dissipates and is got rid of. If the virus is allowed to incubate and continues, and you are saying, Sanjay, it's called the virus economy. You know the, the significance here is that the social distancing must be maintained, and even though the economic numbers may look. Dry, dreadful, bordering on disastrous, they will repair and recover quicker as a result of what's being done. And, and we'll get to ask Bill Gates as well, Richard,
3: a little bit about some of these things, his, his perspective. And I'll preface this question by saying, as doctors, we know nothing about money. So I'll put that out there. But but Fed Chief Jerome Powell, he did say that, uh, that quote, we may well be in a recession. Um, how long do you foresee the
12: economy then being affected, Richard, uh, given all that you just said? He was being polite. He knows full well that the economy is in recession in the sense of you know, how long it will be. Go back to 2008 and it was four quarters that the economy was in recession. But we don't expect anything like that this time mm-hmm. round, for the simple reason the economy has been artificially stopped and it will be started up again, hopefully in the second quarter at some Point. And that's the point. By Q3, you should be seeing a recovery. By Q4, according to Ben Bernanke and Jay pal the recovery could be robust. Now, that, sh- that sounds heartless when you think about the fact there'll be many businesses that will fail as a result of all of this. Thousands, tens of thousands. But for most people in work, when their companies restart, they will be taken back in again. The economy will get back up and running again. And I think By next year, by the beginning of next year, you'll be looking at good growth.
2: Uh, But as you said, it all depends on the medical front. I mean, we heard from Dr. Fauci, this could become a seasonal thing. We don't know the impact of that. Completely. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of questions from viewers. Yep. The stimulus package making its way through Congress. Uh, Cheryl O'Brien wants to know, is there some kind of relief in the package for independent contractors? I currently do not have work because of the shutdown. I cannot receive unemployment. Is there any help in the stimulus package she wants to know?
12: Katie, uh, I spent a good half hour going through the stimulus package to find exactly chapter and verse for you, Cheryl. And yes, in general, during the period, individuals who operate under a sole partnership or as an independent contractor shall be eligible for a covered loan. Now it's not a grant, it's going to be a loan and from what I've been hearing from people trying to get in touch with authorities, it's it, it, there's a lot of bureaucracy getting through. But yes, Cheryl, sole proprietors and independent contractors are covered as if they were employees. And uh, uh,
3: Richard, J- James Rasick has another question for you. Uh, it says, uh, for those of us who will be receiving a government stimulus check but are less affected by the virus, where can we donate our checks in order to help support our na- national medical efforts? Fantastic question.
12: Love it. Do you know anything about that, Richard? I do. There's um, obviously besides your normal faith-based organizations in your own area, which I'm sure would happily take the money because they're helping local people. The big companies like Spotify is going to match up to 10 million. Facebook has said it'll match, match. Yelp has said it will match. But also impact your world. CNN has compiled a list of places where you can find details of where you can help. So from the big to the small, right down to your church, synagogue or temple on the corner, they'll take your money.
2: It, Richard, just internationally, I mean, what, what are countries doing to try to relieve some of the fallout in their countries? Are there lessons the U.S. can take from, from what some of these other countries may be doing?
12: Every country is doing something of a major proportion. Germany is probably near the top by the sheer amount of percentage of GDP. It's giving loans, it's giving help for the industry, the whole lot. The United Kingdom has agreed to pay 80 percent of wages for, com- for uh, employees that would be laid off. And today it said it would do the same for the self-employed. The- the U.S. at 10% of GDP is on the low side for the moment, but nobody expects it will remain there overall. The biggest tragedy of all is that there's no coordination, and that's because the G20 continues to just talk about what it should be doing and says something should be done, but doesn't seem very quick to be able to do it. No, governments around the world are responding. It's an average, an average of between, say, 8 and 12% of GDP at the moment. There's more. To come,
2: no. Richard Quest, Richard, thanks very much. I want to bring Dr. Lena Wen more for uh, more of your question. She's an emergency physician, emergency room physician, Baltimore's former health commissioner, and a veteran of our town halls mm-hmm. as well. Dr. Wen, at, at this moment, what's the biggest point that you want all the people watching tonight to be aware of?
10: I want everyone to know that there is something that we can do right now to slow the spread of coronavirus. That we're not powerless, as we've been talking about Anderson, we're not powerless against this virus. We can reduce the spread of COVID-19 by taking simple steps, physical distancing, social distancing, and staying at home as much as we can. Taking care of ourselves, taking care of our loved ones is also our best defense to protect the community as well.
2: Let's get some viewer questions. This one is uh, sent in uh, from Lynn in Ohio. Uh, she wants to know, we're a family of four. Myself and two children are staying home with no outside exposure. My husband is still going to work. He showers as soon as he comes home from work. Is it safe for him to hug our children, Dr. Wen?
10: A lot of families are in this position where somebody does have to go to work, maybe they're a healthcare worker, police officer, they're around a lot of people and don't have the option of staying at home. We can reduce our risk, we can't eliminate every risk, but I would recommend that while the husband is at work, that he takes every precaution, staying away from people when possible, washing hands, practicing good hand and face hygiene. When coming home, definitely take off clothes, shower, et cetera, and then go hug and play with the kids. And I think it's another reminder for all of us who can stay at home that we should stay at home because there are so many who cannot.
2: Sanjay, uh, this is a question uh, that uh, Charles sent in from uh, Hawaii. It reads, for those who contract or contract, but do not get ill from the virus, will tests show you uh, were once exposed to it?
3: Yeah, that's a really important question. Uh, this is um, it's called serology testing or antibody testing. Basically, it's a little bit what Dr. Fauci was talking about. After you have the infection, your body reacts to it, makes these antibodies, and those antibodies can sort of be a signature that you were, you were previously infected. And you can test for that. And as Dr. Fauci was talking about, maybe you could even use some of the plasma from someone who has these antibodies and, and inject that into somebody else uh, to, to uh, help treat their coronavirus infection. So that's all sort of some time away still, but the answer is yes, you can test for that sort of thing.
2: Dr. Wynn, if you get the virus and then you recover from it, you don't go to the hospital, you don't uh, you know end up actually getting tested, will you, and assuming there is immunity to this, uh, that you are then immune, is there any way to know if you had the virus and you are therefore immune for the, just for the future? I mean, uh, down the road.
10: That's such a great question, and I, this is what we want to get to. We don't have that test yet; it's being developed. But that would be great. It would be so helpful for people to know whether they have immunity.
2: And do we know how long immunity lasts for?
10: We don't know yet. Um, we, there are um, some people who speculate that one might have immunity for a long time, even forever, but we just don't know that yet.
2: D- Dr. Wenis, this is a question from Charmaine in Jacksonville, Florida. It reads, if there's no antibacterial soap available, can plain soap and water still be as effective? Sanjay?
3: Yeah, you know, so this is this is a good question. I mean, you know, just soap and water. It can be very effective, even more effective than the than the hand sanitizers. You do it, you know, for a certain certain technique. And uh, there's been all kinds of studies on this. So it is really as you know, in the midst of a pandemic, it almost sounds silly to keep talking about hand washing, but it makes a difference. And it's really withstood the test of time.
2: All right, Sanjay, along those lines, we got tons of questions on the proper way to wash your hands. Uh, and we convince you to do a tutorial on exactly that because you have changed the way I wash my hands, I will say. I never knew the back of the hand in between the fingers and the thumb thing. Let's take a look at your uh, tutorial.
3: <laughs> All right, I'm gonna show you how to wash your hands. Most people know how to do this, but always worth remembering. Just gonna wet my hands here, get plenty of soap, and just start rubbing your hands. And make sure you really interlace your fingers like this And then also turn your hands over. Don't forget the backs of your hands. People often forget that. Both sides get it really well. And then I'll actually get underneath the fingertips here and even the nails a little bit to make sure you clean underneath there. And then you gotta get the thumbs. Thumbs are really important. Sing the happy birthday song twice to yourself and that usually will do it. And then I just sort of get the soap off my hands here and there. And then here's the key. Before you turn the water off, dry your hands and use the same paper towel, turn off the water, you don't contaminate yourself. Classic. I, uh, I think I first taught you that in Central Africa. You did, I, I? you did. Yes,
2: the Happy Birthday song, which I sang several times while you were doing that demonstration. I think you did about two or three of them. <laughs> yeah, well, um, but yes, you, you. Every time I wash my hands, I think of you. Actually,
3: I do. I do just want to point out that typically faucets nowadays actually the water comes on and off. There's sort of sensors there, so I wouldn't typically waste that much water. But just for the demonstration, I wanted to to show people. So hope that's helpful. It's really it important. Is, yeah. Uh, Let's get to another question here. This is a question sent in from uh, Julia in Arlington, Virginia, which reads, uh, does a past history of pneumonia and lung scarring uh, put me at increased risk of severe COVID illness? I'm 39 and healthy, but I had pneumonia several times as a child and have some permanent scarring from it that's visible on X-rays. Dr. Wynn, what do you think?
10: A lot of people are asking questions about this because the studies show that those who are more likely to have severe infections are those who are older or have chronic medical conditions. But it's unclear what exactly counts as a chronic medical condition. Some things are very clear, but some things are not. And having pneumonia earlier, and having some scarring, unclear whether that's something that predisposes you to having worse coronavirus. But it's always good to act out of an abundance of caution and take extra precautions, including using Sanjay's great hand-washing video. (laughs) Uh,
2: Sanjay, Grace Burke in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, sent in this video. Let's take a look.
8: My mom is 91 years old and lives in her own home and is isolated. How long do I have to self-quarantine, and what does that self-quarantine look like, in order to visit her and assist her in her home?
3: It's this is a tough question, right? And Dr. Fauci talked about this. We want to visit our parents. We want to spend time with them. Uh, for right now, someone who's 91 years old, if they have any pre-existing conditions, uh, Dr. Wendy, tell me if I agree. I think it's it's best to probably give some time. Now, if you are living with the person. Establishing a, a sort of space within the home where someone can quarantine themselves, or, or you know sort of be away and really you know uh, be able to keep that six feet distance. Use your own utensils. Try and have your own space as much as possible. But I say that knowing it's knowing full well that can be challenging.
2: And also, Doctor Wen, I mean, there's there's other considerations too. I mean, if you if you have a 91 year old mother who's living alone, uh, there's you know potential danger to her just in general of you know if she's going grocery shopping by herself all all those sorts of things
10: that's right and it's weighing a lot of different risks and i think it has to depend on the health of everyone involved the likely exposures and and also just there's this human element too that we want to be with our families, um, so it's a tough decision that a lot of people have to be making right now.
3: You know, I got I got to say as well. Um, I think Anderson, you and I have talked about it, but I was supposed to visit my my parents who are in their late 70s, sort of I think um, you know end of February, early March, and you know decided not to not to do that. And uh, you know they really wanted us, especially my kids, to come visit. Uh, we couldn't do that, but we we we've been calling a lot and FaceTiming a lot, and keep coming back to this idea that social distancing does not have to mean Social isolation, especially with technology, it's not ideal. But you know, in some ways, it can still keep you pretty connected.
2: Yeah, it's so hard. I mean, it's such a difficult thing to, to, you know, try to weigh the all the the competing factors. Sanjay uh, Aditi in Canada sent in this video. Let's take a look.
10: Are babies at higher risk for coronavirus, and what symptoms should parents look for in babies because
1: they cannot explain what is happening to them? Thank you.
3: Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a good point. I'll give you some data, but you know, just just keep in mind that it's, it can be very individualized. You know, the, the elderly and people with pre-existing conditions are, are the ones that are most likely to become either seriously or critically ill. You know, some eighteen to twenty percent of people uh, in those categories develop severe critical illness. Uh, for for. You know, younger people, it's, it's a lot lower. It's, it's closer to five or six percent. But interestingly, for babies, zero to one year old, it was closer to 11 percent. So, you know, about one in 10, roughly. Babies can't talk, as, as, our, as our viewer just mentioned. You gotta, you gotta monitor things. You have to, you know, check fever, you know, check if there's any abnormal vital signs, you know. And if there's question, especially with the baby, you know, call, call your doctor and, and make sure you call ahead before just showing up at the ER.
2: Yeah, I should point out to our viewers, uh, Bill Gates is coming up in just a, a few minutes. We're going to be uh, talking to him for about uh, for, for an extended period of time. Uh, he's really been out front on this, warning about the, the, the risks of a pandemic uh, like this. Um, D- Dr. Wen, uh, you, you've talked about this on the air, so I'm not saying anything. I'm not revealing anything that you, you are pregnant. Um, what kind of precautions are you taking? And also now, you know, a lot of hospitals in New York and I assume elsewhere, although I'm not sure I know in New York, are not allowing loved ones inside the delivery room uh, out, of, out of concern for, uh, for the mother and, and healthcare workers and, and obviously for the baby as well.
10: That's right. So I'm now 39 weeks pregnant and so on baby watch could happen any day now. And definitely it's something that I think about a lot about the potential risk of contracting coronavirus and what that might look like in pregnancy. Now it does not appear that there is an elevated risk to pregnant women of having severe symptoms or severe effects because of pregnancy. That's the good news. But there is so much that's not known about the risk of coronavirus and pregnancy and pregnant women should take extra precautions because we are medically vulnerable now these guidelines are changing every day my hospital used to welcome the entire family in the delivery room now there's only one person that's allowed and you mentioned anderson about new york hospitals some of them only allowing or not allowing any visitors at all and i can't really imagine not having my husband or any support system there but i think this is just such an extraordinary time for all of us and we're all living through this level of uncertainty. Um, and I think about the sacrifices that so many people are making, and I think it's something that I'm, I might have to deal with my, myself about having, instead of face-to-face time, including face-to-face time with my loved ones afterwards with the baby, having face time instead.
2: Yeah. yeah. S- Sanjay, I was just looking on, on the bottom of the screen. One of the qu- questions our viewer wrote in uh, just now, tweeted in, was, uh, is it safe to ride the subway in New York if the car isn't very crowded?
3: You know, it's it's um, it's challenging. I think. I mean, I think if you're very careful and you can really maintain a social distance and be careful of surfaces and, and I mean, that's the problem. You
2: hold on to the you know the the the, the, the handles and stuff in on the subway.
3: Yeah. I mean, look. If you, if it's essential, and again, I know for some people this is essential. So I don't want to be dismissive in any way of this. But it's challenging. I mean, I, I think it really has created a, a significant awareness for everybody how you live your your life. I mean, I I, I just noticed myself moving much more slowly being more mindful even as I touch surfaces around me. If you can do that and, and, and take this seriously, I think, it's, I think it's possible. But you know, we're still in this very much, Anderson. So a few weeks from now, that answer may be different.
2: Yeah, Dr. Wen, thanks so much. Sanjay and I are sticking around. Our conversation with Bill Gates is coming up in just a, a few minutes. As we said at the top, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they, uh, early on, they spent $100 million, they gave $100 million to coronavirus relief. Bill Gates has sounded the alarm for years about a pandemic. Now that it's here, his thoughts about how to stop it.
1: After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
2: Back to CNN's Global Town Hall, our fourth Global Town Hall. This hour, our medical experts are going to answer your questions about the toll the pandemic has taken on people's mental health. We'll also talk to Olympic swimmer uh, Katie Ledecky, a five-time gold medalist, one of the most dominant swimmers in the world today, about the cancellation of this year's Games. I want to start, though, with our guest for the next half hour, Bill Gates. Mr. Gates and his wife Melinda have been tireless advocates for the poor through their Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They early on gave out $100 million toward efforts around the world to control the coronavirus.
3: And Bill Gates has also been warning about the threat of a pandemic for years. In 2015, he gave this TED Talk saying that the greatest risk of a global catastrophe wouldn't come from nuclear war, it would come from a highly infectious virus. And he said, quote, if anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war. Welcome now uh, to you, Mr. Gates. Thanks so much for joining us.
6: Good to talk to you.
2: Bill, in, in that TED Talk, you pointed out that we invest a lot in being ready for a war or nuclear deterrence. But you said, "We quote, we've invested very little in a system to stop an epidemic. We're not ready for the next epidemic. Just big picture, before we get into details, how do you see the coronavirus, where we're at right now in the United
6: States compared to other pandemics the world has faced? you can infect somebody when you're still fairly healthy. And there are many things like Ebola that aren't like that. You're you know, flat on your back before mm-hmm. you become significantly infectious. So this is kind of the nightmare scenario that uh, in 2015, I gave a Shattuck lecture, I wrote an article for the New England Journal of Medicine and talked about how we needed to invest in new platforms so that we could quickly make diagnostics, Make drugs and make vaccines to stop an epidemic before it got to large numbers. I, I know you did some of that investment, but was were all the
2: things you you called for or hoped would be done were, were those done?
6: Uh, basically, almost none of them. Uh, a few countries, our foundation, and uh, Wellcome Trust did fund a vaccine effort called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation. And, that, and some of that work is being used to make the vaccines that'll be the first to be ready uh, for coronavirus. But in terms of the testing, the antiviral drugs, uh, not much happened. You know, people, when you don't know that a problem will come around, sometimes people prepare, like we prepare for war with war games and putting lots of money into that. But sadly, we've gone long enough without a disease here in the United States uh, that even though we had Ebola and Zika and SARS, uh, not much happened. The countries that really were affected by SARS actually are the ones uh, that uh, have mm. done the best in this epidemic because they acted when the number of cases were still very, very small.
3: So, so um Bill, when you you give a talk like you did in 2015 and then you see what's happening now, I mean, could you have foreseen the rest of this, uh, the the sort of response, the lack of infrastructure, the lack of resources, the no apparent strategy really out of the gate? Has that part of it surprised you, given that, I mean, you were sounding the alarm five years ago?
6: Well, one of the things I called for is in that the same way we do war games on a regular basis, and we say, okay, we're not ready to deal with uh, surprises. I called for us to do germ games yeah. and look at, okay, who would talk to the private sector? Who would make sure that testing capacity was raised? Who would make sure that the right people are being right. tested? You know, not somebody without symptoms getting tested daily, uh, rather, uh, you know, medical personnel who have symptoms who really need to know. And so I wouldn't have predicted exactly how slow and how uh, somewhat chaotic the response has been. But if we had done those simulations, we would have seen some of these flaws in the system and you know, b- behaved uh, a little bit like the countries that have, have done the best on this one.
2: Uh, it's important to remember that COVID-19 was only first found in humans a little over three months ago. It certainly feels like a lot longer than that, given what we're going <laughs> through. What stage do you think the pandemic is in right now in the United States and globally. And, and I guess, you know, what people at home want to know is how close are we to a peak here in the U.S.?
6: Well, the good news is that uh, China did their uh, shutdown and they did it in a very serious way. And after a six week period of a shutdown that's more extreme than even the best states in the United States are likely to do, they were able to start opening up again. And the total number of cases there uh, is very, very small. So that's very good news. And as people are developing models, they look at that Chinese data. They look at how the South Korean numbers uh, have gotten under control. So we're entering to a tough period that if we do it right, we'll only have to do it once for six to 10 weeks, but we have to do it. It has to be the whole country. We have to raise the level of testing and the priorities, prioritization of that testing quite dramatically uh, in order to make sure we go through one shutdown so that we take the medical problem uh, and really stop it before there's a large number of deaths. We do then get an economic problem, which is why you, you wanna minimize the amount of time and having states go at different things or thinking you can do it county by county, that will not work. The cases will be exponentially growing anywhere you don't have a serious shutdown. So even in, because folks look, people who want sort of county by county
2: or say, you know, well, let's get back online faster, say, well, look, in some states, there's less than 200 cases. In many states, there's less than, than 200 cases right now. You're saying even in those states, uh, the same kind of shutdown
6: needs to occur? Well, let's say you have a hundred cases and let's say you don't do a shutdown, then it grows 33% per day. So if you take a hundred, you get a thousand, you get 10,000, it's exponential growth. If you're not stopping it, they, mm-hmm. you, the sooner you in, engage in the shutdown, the easier it is to get to that peak. We have we have not peaked, Uh, you know, the parts of the country that aren't shut down by the in late April. We should start to see the numbers peak there. They'll still be too high to open up. So you'll probably have to go another month to really get those numbers down. But any part of the country that has cases and and truthfully, because of our uh, problems with testing, uh, because we're not prioritizing testing the right way a lot of those places actually do have cases, but even if they have the hundred, that will grow. uh, And people do cross county boundaries. And so basically the whole country needs to do what uh, was done in the part of China where they had these infections.
3: Yeah, and it's worth pointing out, again, that states that had just a few cases last week uh, have, you know, over 1,000 or sometimes 2,000 cases this week, to your point, uh, uh, Bill. The the other thing I'm I'm curious about, you know, we keep hearing that the virus is going to dictate the timeline. Uh, Dr. Fauci has said that. When you look at this virus, we got three and a half months worth of data now, 150 countries. If you apply all the analytics that a, you know, Microsoft, that the, all, all the analytics that we can possibly apply to this, is how this is going to sort of progress and end knowable? I mean, can you can you give a, a, a clear answer, depending on, on, on what sort of, uh, you know, mitigation measures we have in place?
6: It's very likely that rich countries who uniformly throughout their country do a serious shutdown, that they will able to be able to avoid a high percentage of their population getting infected. That's what the exemplars, like some of the work in China and South Korea, are telling us. Now, as you get to poor countries, the mm. difficulty of doing the isolation, uh, where you live close by in slums, where you have to go out uh, every day to get your food, uh, it is going to be much, much tougher. And so... Uh, you know, by summer, I think the rich countries that have been competently uh, led on this will not have to go back into shutdown. And uh, you know, from the disease point of view, they'll avoid very large numbers of deaths. And so, in that phase, uh, we still will have a challenge with the developing countries.
2: One of the things that Dr. Fauci actually said in our last hour, which really concerned me, and I was asking him about the states that, you know, uh, I think there's more than a dozen or so that have a, just a one or 200 reported cases. He was saying how it's critical that, you know, that those states that they have testing there, that they test and that they contact, do contact tracing of all those who are known to be infected to really right now when the numbers are still low track it all. And then I asked him, he was using a lot of, uh, um, sort of uh, future verbs about things needing to happen or plans. It didn't sound like I asked him if it was actually happening now. He said it needs to happen a lot more. From what you're saying, it, it's got to it's gotta be happening right now because if there's not that contact tracing in places where it seems like it hasn't really hit, we're going
6: to see it hit. That's right. I mean, we wish that we'd in, shut down even sooner in places like New York. Then you would have Uh, not had the medical overload that uh, is such a a huge challenge for them. Uh, Unless you're gonna partition the country, the whole country has to be in this together. Uh, And we're not, you know, I don't see us making people not cross county lines or something like that. So it really is how many cases are in the country and have we adopted in terms of testing, uh, testing, prioritization, contact tracing, the right things. But the good news is, we're seeing that countries that pay that price, which is a gigantic price, mm. then uh, the percentage of Chinese that are infected is like 0.01%. And so now, you know, stores are open there and closed in the rest of the world. Uh, you know, that's, I'm not sure you call it good news, but I totally agree with what Dr. Fauci said. He's been a, a very positive voice about the numbers driving this. And those numbers are very uncertain because of the uh, still the disorganization of, of the testing capacity and where it's directed.
3: You, you know, it, it strikes me that, I mean, you you know the world of public health very well and you know the 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 world of the economy very well, financial world very well. They, they seem to be pitted against each other. And I don't know, really know much about the financial world at all. But I think there's this idea, Bill, that that's Maybe you can be a little incremental here, right? Yes, we need to uh, listen to the public health guidance and all that, but can we be a little incremental? Start getting some things back to work, you know, so that we don't you know, really devastate the economy that much. What, how, how, do you, how do you respond to that?
6: Until we get the number of cases in the country down to small numbers where we can be doing testing in isolation against those small numbers, We need to make this our top priority. And it is super painful to drive this very high degree of social isolation I I call shutdown. The middle course really isn't there because it's hard to say, oh, go back to the theater for a week, you know, maybe or maybe not, you'll be infected or infecting people. Uh, You know, until we get the certainty we've hit these low numbers, uh, you know, I doubt even if you told people Mm. Uh, that they should be buying new houses and cars and, uh, you know, hanging out in restaurants. I doubt uh, they're going to want to do that. You know, people want to protect older people. They want to protect their parents. And so the sooner, you know, we take this medicine, which is tough medicine, the sooner we'll be out of it and not have to go back into it again.
3: And, and just really, I'm sorry, uh, just really quickly, when you say low numbers, I mean, are you talking about actual numbers? Or are you talking about spread? Because this this is a virus that can spread to two or three people. Uh, that's a lot. I mean, if it spreads below to just below one person, th- is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking about actual numbers?
6: Well, the absolute numbers better be pretty low because you're going to have to have the testing capacity to take the remaining positives see them early. And so you're not getting that exponential spread. And that's why looking at the other countries uh, who acted sooner uh, and in some cases did not have to shut down to a full degree. That's where the lessons are. Mm. You know, uh, you know, they can show us, okay, what was the medical history? So you see if asymptomatics are spreading, but yes, the absolute numbers are going to have to be fairly low and will We'll have some degree of caution. We won't open up completely overnight. And, uh, you know, because we don't want quite the full exponentiation, even off of the small base that we'll get ourselves to. In I I don't want to be political in any way, um, but just in terms of for folks who are
2: out there, you know, and, and looking forward, I always think it's better to know just factually What's coming down the pike? Then uh, you know. Then uh, it's good to have hopes and aspirations, but it's good also to know what's actually coming down the pike. For people who are, are believing or imagining that you know, uh, in middle of April or early April, people are going to be able to gather together in churches for celebra- for you know Easter celebrations or you know go back to work in a regular way. Is it sounding like you're saying that that's not? Re- you don't believe that's realistic.
6: No, it's not realistic. The numbers are still going up. Uh, it, that only happens after the numbers have peaked and are going down a lot and getting down to an absolute level. Uh, you know, there are some good things happening. The work on a vaccine, although that probably will take 18 months, that's going full speed ahead. Our foundation is funding that. We're looking at getting vaccines to everyone in the world. So in, in the in the long run, that is the key thing. Uh, we had a really positive result that, people were wondering, did you have to have a medical person swab you in this way that they stuck it deep in your nose? We were able to prove, which the mon- on, F- on Monday the FDA made official, that if you do a self-test, uh, where you don't have to have the medical worker with personal protection equipment, that self-test is as accurate as the one where the medical worker gives it. So that means that uh, by self-swabbing, uh, we'll be able to get a lot more tests done uh, and only be limited by the uh, PCR back end capacity. So there's, you know, there's good news coming. One of the therapeutics, although none of them are proven out, but there are quite a few. We have a, a things the foundation created called the Therapeutics Accelerator to really look at thousands of compounds and make sure we focus the uh, human trials on the ones that have the most promise. So. You know, innovation, which some of which we could have done in advance, but innovation really is happening. But, you know, if, when you look at those numbers, the U.S., you know, now with the most cases, uh, at, you know, there is no state that has gotten to the point where their numbers are flat and are going down. And the testing capacity is means we're quite blind uh, to a, a lot of these cases right now. So it. It, it can be done, uh, but uh, we're not, you know, the light is not at the end of the tunnel in terms of a, a mid-April reopening.
2: Can I just ask on a personal basis for your family, I, I assume you guys are self-isolating. How is, what is your life like now compared to what it was and how long do you think you're going to have to, as a family, uh, you know, live like you're living?
6: Well, there's some uncertainty about this, but, you know, my view has been that, you uh, Through May, uh, unfortunately, the schools will not, uh, you know, not likely to come back uh, for this uh, uh, year, this uh, school year, and um, you know, that's about the range, uh, you know, late May, early June, that we'll probably have to be like this. Uh, You know, I'm learning how to do digital meetings. I happen to use the thing called Teams for Microsoft. but it's, it's a very different lifestyle, and it's very jarring. You know, we're in a, it's a scary time. You know, every morning you get up, you see the, that number uh, has increased. So, uh, you know, learning to cope uh, is, you know, we're completely in uncharted territory. But the scientists that our foundation gets to fund and work with, they are doing a great job, and the health workers are doing heroic work. So I do see... You know, it coming to an end, and if we do it properly, we will only be sh- shut down in the U.S. for that one period of time. I, I don't know if you saw Sanjay Gupta's tutorial
2: on how to wash your hands, but to me it was a revelation that you have to like clean your thumbs separately. That I, <laughs> I was unaware of.
6: You probably knew this, Bill. I'll have to go back and study that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> okay. Not separately, but you do have to make sure you you get your thumbs uh, for sure. Let, let, you know, a few years ago, uh, Bill, we we talked. I don't know if you remember talked about pandemic flu at that point and and vaccines and 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 how quickly a vaccine could be deployed at that point and if you did it months faster, I mean you could save a lot of lives in, in a pandemic flu situation. With this, you know, Dr. Fauci, I think has been very clear that this is a year, 18 months, whatever that it will take before people could actually get this vaccine. Are there, are there and, I, and, I, and I know that he's, he's right about that, but I'm just wondering from, from a technological standpoint, are there ways to speed this up using genetically modified virus or anything to, to expedite the process?
6: Well, for the next pandemic, We should be able to make diagnostics very quickly, like hundreds of millions within two months. We should be able to scale up antiviral drugs from a much bigger library within like six months. And by being ready with this RNA platform, we should be able to make vaccines in more like a year than a year and a half. Uh, And so we can, and I think governments this time probably will pay attention uh, to uh, making those investments for the next one. Um, you know, the, one of the biggest open questions is the therapeutics. Can we very quickly uh, find an antiviral drug uh, that really means the number of people who have to go on the respirator is much lower and cuts that death rate quite a bit? Uh, you know, it's tough enough in the US uh, with the, uh, we put a lot of money into our health system. If you think about this as you get to India, Nigeria uh, and the, the even poorer countries in Africa, you know, just imagine what the overloads going to look like there, and yet they won't be able to do the, uh, that isolation. Mm-hmm. And so you know we, we, as we've gotten the disease down with the low infection rate, We'll have to be not letting people go to those countries or come from those countries hardly at all. It'll be very strict in terms of how that testing is done. Uh, So the sooner we solve this on a global basis, the sooner we can go back to the kind of world economy that actually was in very good shape uh, before this came along. And, and
3: just to be clear, you think that there will be lessons learned and, and applied for the next pandemic? It seems sometimes, unless something is, is smacking us in the face, Bill, that people just don't pay attention, even when it comes to their own individual health, let, let alone public health.
6: Well, talk about being smacked in the face. What's going on here is mind blowing. Never in my lifetime uh, has you know have we had to change our behavior and have this drastic, effect on the economy in order to save lives and you know there are people who wish we didn't have to do that that is fully understandable this is some very tough medicine but it's better to take the economic problem where the economy can come back than to allow it to spread throughout the country and take millions of deaths as the price that we have to pay here and so yeah i think this is a smack on the head you know this will cost trillions of dollars. They just passed a $2 trillion relief bill and now they're talking about more. The kind of research to be ready for the next pandemic is a tens of billions of number. So it'll look almost trivial mm-hmm. compared to the price we're paying now. Uh, and that price would have been a lot lower if uh, the world was, was more prepared. There are a lot of people don't
2: understand why a vaccine can't be developed sooner. The, the biggest reason for that is simply science, which is something we can't necessarily change. But you're saying that it could, down the road, get to a place where it would take a year, not a year and a half. Is that after spending the, the tens of billions you're talking about?
6: Yeah, the the you know companies like Moderna, CureVac and LBO, uh, our foundation has been funding them to build vaccines in a somewhat different way it's an rna platform that is very versatile so the amount you have to change is very small and you can build up your manufacturing uh, so that it is available no matter what pathogen comes along that manufacturing capacity is there and certain elements of how you go through regulatory approval because you're only changing one small piece you will have had many of these RNA vaccines approved. People understand the safety profiles, so that would uh, mean that in the future, yes, that timeline is less because you you want things to be safe, and you know vaccines actually can, in weird cases, do an enhancement of the disease. You really need to to test for that, and so I don't think we'll get much below a year. You know, we'll challenge very smart people to work on that. But there, the trade-off involved there is about the uh, how confident are you that when you're going out and giving this, uh, that there's no, no side effects. I do just want to follow up on something you
2: said that it, it and I think it's important to point out that as bad as this is, this could be worse in terms of uh, a virus. I mean, you've t- talked about, you know, the potential of a pandemic that wipes out, you know, huge percentages of countries' populations, um, and that is entirely possible. So for anybody who doesn't think that this is reason enough to prepare for the next one, there, something coming down the pike could be much worse, correct?
6: That's right. You'll see in the, a lot of people try to show that uh, viruses, their, their infectivity and the, how much they kill, the case fatality rate, those are separate things. And so smallpox uh, is a very bad case because it's very infective and uh, it kills like 30%. Here, fortunately, although there's still some uncertainty, you know, the case fatality rate is something like 1%. If you have a, a medical system that's able to take care of the severe cases, about 1% of those who are infected uh, die. Uh, and yes, it could be worse. This is very, very bad. Uh, but, but still not not the worst case.
3: I got I got a question sort of about how you see the role of the the public sector versus the private sector when it comes to something like this, a pandemic you know, a global issue like this. Uh, you know, you were talking about the testing and there was a, a, a press conference at the White House where they had people from these various private diagnostic testing organizations and other, you know, consumer-facing organizations that were private. You know, with something like this is, how does that collaboration happen? I mean, is, is there should the roles and the responsibilities be more equally, uh, you know, divided or at least described?
6: Well, the responsibility to take care of the health of the public. That's a governmental responsibility. And so in the case of testing, those companies aren't in a position to decide who should be tested and who shouldn't be tested. Those are societal priorities. So right now it's fairly chaotic. I, You know, I said somebody can get a test every day without symptoms and a medical worker in another location doesn't have access to the test. So. The, you know, the values we have as a society, our understanding of the disease dynamics, and the very finite capacity of, of the way we're doing the tests now, which is the PCR machines, uh, that is up to the government uh, to get involved with. In this case, it, state leaders have had to step in and, and take some responsibility there. But, uh, you know, it's kind of unfortunate that we don't have a digital system that's ranking uh, for the finite capacity we have, exactly which ones should be taken care of there. And maybe we'll get that fixed or 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 not. Maybe that'll uh, strangely have to be at the state level. But the government is in the role here, and it has to design the system. And then the private sector companies, you know who own those machines, run those machines, they they'll step up, mm. they'll work super hard. Uh, you know, the clarity though, has to come from, uh, the federal government.
3: You, you talk about, um, you know, vaccines and, and anticipating a pandemic like this. If you go even one step further back, Bill, and say, um, I read an article that said that this virus was actually uh, found in, in bats some time ago. It was a virus of concern for people who were looking for this because it was a coronavirus and there was a concern that it could jump from animals to humans. Do you think that this could have been prevented e- even earlier on from making that jump?
6: Well, having these markets where you have, you know, bats in a cage and pangolins and things like that, it's fairly clear that the less we have of those, uh, that somewhat reduces the chance, but it won't reduce it to zero. Mm. And and so you really do need the preparedness system uh, there. And there are so many coronaviruses in animals, it it would not have been possible to say, OK, this is the one to be afraid of. We don't understand enough about that Uh, how it it transforms to cross the species barrier. There are literally millions of viruses out in animals. The number that cross over, like the flu does, is not very large, but that's not very easy to predict. People have looked at that, maybe someday, but that's outside of our our ability. And so we have to have the tools when it does cross over to see, wow, if you're seeing human-to-human transmission, particularly respiratory transmission, then the world has to go on red alert. Uh, and you know parts of the world went on red alert in January um, and parts did not.
2: You, you've talked tonight a number of times, you referenced the importance of testing. And I just kind of want to circle back to that because um, we're hearing from a number of, of, of you know, public leaders, that it, they seem to be de-emphasizing and saying look we're not going to test the whole country and uh you know and there's now guidelines that if you have symptoms you probably don't even need to get tested as long as you're not really bad sick you can just you are very sick you can stay at home and if things get worse then contact uh, a a hospital or, or your doctor can you just talk about the role of testing has moving forward i mean obviously we know the problems with the tests that existed we know all that but just moving forward how important it is to keep testing and do you want to, just to get data, is it you just test the people who have symptoms? Do you test people who have no symptoms whatsoever to kind of get some sort of a baseline?
6: Yeah, for surveillance, you probably do want to go out and almost randomly pick people, even asymptomatics, to see if you're missing something there. And and uh, our foundation with partners in the Seattle area actually has uh, that going on. We took a flu study that we were doing before and, and repurposed it. Actually, that flu study was the first to see community spread of coronavirus in the US and uh, you know should have been a uh, red flag when that, when that was seen. In any case, the testing is very key. The only reason we talk about what you do if you can't get a test is that demand will exceed supply. Even as we get organized with more capacity and we're doing the prioritization, the, uh, not everyone will be able be tested i mean people are so concerned now that if you really could test everybody you know that would be nice but we don't have you know 300 million uh tests available even if we're we're doing the right things testing is how you know what's going on that's where you see those red dots that uh is the indicator that'll tell you we're not doing enough of a shutdown or actually now we can start to back off. So testing has to keep going up. Testing is very, very central, but we won't be able to get a test to everybody who just uh, wants that that peace of mind. Unfortunately, you know, eventually we may have a strip test that tests for the virus, not for serology. But if it has the right sensitivity, we could have uh, a scale up there. But unfortunately, that's probably you know six to nine months before we'll have. That type of that home test.
2: Mm. I, I know we got to. I know we got to let you go. Uh, just finally, for you know, there's a lot of f- folks out there tonight watching, or going to be watching this online, or whenever tomorrow. Um, what's your message to them? People are scared. People are worried. They've lost their jobs. They're you know, they don't know how long they're going to be in their homes. What do you? What's your message?
6: Well, it is a very challenging time, and we're all having to make huge changes to our lives that we never would have expected. Uh, People are rising to the challenge, um, you know, figuring out how uh, to be at their home and reduce their contacts, that's really fantastic. People are figuring out how to volunteer, uh, many cases through virtual connections, uh, tutoring and mentoring. People are giving money to philanthropies in the local areas that are stepping up to find, you know, where people may not have shelter or food, uh, and that's really fantastic. I, you know, I'm an optimist, Will be driven by the numbers, but I, from what we've seen in other countries, uh, if we do this well and nationwide, these numbers will start to come down, and so there'll be a point, you know, hopefully uh, in in uh, ten weeks or less, where we can start going back to normal. That's a long time, though. Uh, I mean, it's a wild amount of time, and there will be this temptation uh, to let off. Uh, unfortunately, that will just mean that it, it it lasts longer, or that we have to go back and do that again. So, I you know I, there's no need to panic, uh, even though the change is is, uh, is a bit scary.
3: If, if I could just ask one more thing, because I, I think you're, you're so your voice is so important here. But there's a lot of people who are watching right now who, who have not been affected by this and they're not they're feeling fine. They don't know anybody who's contracted the coronavirus. How, how do you best convey risk in a situation like this?
6: Well, if we do the, the shutdown properly, the percentage of people who gets in, who get infected will actually be very low. Uh, that's the idea is to not get up to like 1%, which, you know, then is 4%, 16%, 64% if you keep letting it exponentiate that way. So you have to stop well short of that 1%. You know, the damage, there will be a lot of economic damage. Somebody who owns a restaurant, somebody, you know, who's, who's now, uh, their job is not there that. Um, you know, we'll have to be creative on this new ground, how we do things like relief packages to help out and, and minimize a lot of that pain. But the medical risk, uh, if we do this thing well, the chance that you're going to get coronavirus and die of it is not super high. There are other diseases that will still be killing more people uh, during during this time frame if things are done well. We're really focused on this because we need to be to change the behavior, to nip it in the bud at modest uh, percentages of the population.
2: Well, Bill, thank you very much for being with us tonight and thank all you right. for your work, the work that you and uh, Melinda do uh, all the time. Thank you so much, really appreciate it. Thank you, great. J- just ahead, the psychological impact of the pandemic, not only for those families immediately affected, but for the millions whose daily life has been upended. We'll be right back.
1: After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
2: Welcome back. Dealing with the pandemic, of course, not only enormous physical strain, but the longer this goes on, mental health and mental fitness are paramount. Take a look at this map. At least 20 states and several cities are under stay-at-home orders. New Hampshire will join them. Just moments ago, the governor announced the mandate that will go into effect uh, tomorrow night there. Life sure is a lot different from more than half the country's population. Joining Sanjay and me now is Dr. Christine uh, Moutier, a psychiatrist who we've talked to uh, before uh, many times. Dr. Moutier, last we spoke just about, I think, two weeks ago. So much has changed for everyone around the world. Let's just talk about gaining perspective on, on what's happening right now.
8: Yes, Anderson, it's amazing how things have evolved so quickly. But you know what I've noticed is that people are paying attention to their well-being, how they're coping, keeping their resilience up, and connecting with others. And you know we can be really proud of that in this moment. It's actually a first time ever that during an infectious disease epidemic or pandemic, we are paying attention to mental health. And one of the reasons that is so important is that right now we have the ability to change the the outcome of of the viral outbreak, the timing of that, and we have the potential to try some new things related to our brain health that we might not have tried before because we are in such a different a set of circumstances when you talk about you brain know,
2: health what you, like what
8: right so when we think about mental health the brain is a physical organ in the body just like every other organ in the body it's interacting with our life our choices and the environment um, and so the world health organization tells us that among all the causes of disability worldwide Depression is actually at the top of the list. And so it's, it's really, um, in a way, it's time to focus on this because we are not powerless. We can actually do something about the clarity of our mind, our mood, our sleep, um, our perceptions, our feelings, our thoughts. All of those are related to our brain health.
3: You know, uh, Dr. Moutier, maybe it's because I'm somewhat of a control freak, but, you know, uncertainty feels like a, a particularly challenging thing to, to deal with. I mean, um, do, you, do you have any advice? I mean, people don't have a lot of certainty right now with regard to how this is or when this is going to end and the economy and all these things that we've been talking about. What do you tell folks like that?
8: Yes, it's unsettling to all of us to, to be in this uncertain time. But what I would encourage people to do is think about the ways that you can use some brain exercises. They're really cognitive exercises. This stems from cognitive behavioral therapy and other disciplines that we can all tap into right now, actually, while, while telehealth is um, rising up to the yeah. fore and available to so many more. But what I would encourage people to do is really think about what you have in your control and what you don't have in your control. Those are facts, you can get your head around that and then you can move towards what is in your control, which actually is a lot. It's, these are the choices that we can make for ourselves and our families right now.
2: There's a lot of questions from viewers. Nermeen in Canada wants to know, uh, says I'm 39 weeks pregnant. I live in Kitchener, Waterloo, Ontario, and I'm wondering how I'm gonna give birth and protect my baby and to be safe at the same time. Please advise me what to do because I'm so stressed out with the current situation.
8: Right, well, this is a time where certain uh, populations and circumstances create an extra set of uh, stress and burden. And again, you know, depending on it in this case, it's imperative, obviously, that she's staying in close contact with her OBGYN, her healthcare provider, and working through what the plan will be, given the circumstance that, that is upon us right now. Um, You know, there is actually a whole uh, movement, a whole group of individuals who are coming together around their pregnancy and um, around having newborns in the home right now. And you can tap into those resources. There's a lot of guidance actually going on from experts uh, within OBGYN and uh, within, um, there's actually a whole arena of women's mental health as well.
3: You know, and I, and I should point out, I think last time you were on, uh, doctor, we, we, we sort of made this point that social distancing does not have to equal social isolation. I think that's an important message. Let's get to another uh, question. This one's from Kara, uh, Karen in Fairfield County, Connecticut, which reads, I have major depression and general anxiety. I'm 62 years old. I recently suffered a heart attack and I'm recovering in a rehab center. I've seen a psychologist prior to this and I was actually seeing a different psychologist while I was an inpatient here prior to the coronavirus crisis. Now I've not seen her in three weeks. I don't expect to see her until it's safe for visitors here. I will not be released from here because I have no one to care for me. My depression and anxiety have gotten worse. I have no one to talk to that is a mental health professional. What do I do? Uh, Dr. Moutier, I mean, you know, it's tough to, you know, if people aren't aren't allowed to, to, you know, if they're socially distancing, keeping distance, to actually have these types of visits, to get the types of services. I mean, I really, you have to feel for somebody like this.
8: Yes, you know, I think in her circumstance, I, I would really go into an advocacy mode um, for yourself. I really just send you a lot of encouragement and support. There are psychiatric and psychological services that you can tap into even remotely mm. through video chat. And you can ask your care providers there in the hospital about that. It's a time when people with a history of mental health conditions need to take extra special care of their mental health right now. And, and it is a time when we can do that. Even if you had never seen a mental health provider, there is the opportunity to do that now through telehealth services.
3: I'm really glad we're having this conversation because I think there is a lot of focus on physical health, understandably, but a lot of people are dealing with this uh, for real uh, now. And besides the resources that uh, Dr. Moutier mentioned, the CDC I know also has a page of resources. You can see the web address right there on your screen.
2: Yeah. Dr. Muti, as always, thank you so much. Coming up, we're going to talk to five-time Olympic gold medal winner, uh, gold uh, medal swimmer Katie Ledecki about the postponement of the 2020 Summer Games and what we all can do uh, while we're isolating ourselves. We'll be right back.
1: After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
2: Back to our fourth coronavirus town hall. Uh, We still have our social media scroll at the bottom of your screen. You can tweet your questions with the hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. Today was to have been opening uh, day for Major League Baseball, one of countless sporting events either postponed or canceled because of the virus. The Summer Olympics in Japan, as you know, have been put off until 2021, which affects thousands of athletes worldwide who expected to compete. Among those athletes, Olympic gold medalists and a member of the past two U.S. Olympic teams and one of the most dominant athletes in the world, swimmer Katie Ledecky. Thanks so much for being with us. Um, First of all, how do you feel about the the Olympics being postponed?
11: It's obviously disappointing, but it was certainly the right call. I think we all expected it as we saw how things were going around the world and here in the U.S. uh, A lot of athletes weren't able to train and we could see in the future that that was going to be the case and it doesn't doesn't really make sense to bring everyone from around the world together in the middle of a pandemic
3: mm. so how, how is team usa then moving forward katie now, now that these plans have, uh, have been up- upended
11: well we're still waiting to hear when the olympics will take place what the actual dates will be and then from there it'll kind of be a, a ripple effect of of scheduling and scheduling of our Olympic trials, which still need to be held and a lot of other competitions to prepare us for the games. So it's a lot of planning to be done now.
2: So you're in Palo Alto, California. Uh, I assume you're, what's your situation now? Are you, are you able to even, I mean, you're like, are you like everybody that is trying to figure out how to work out in being socially isolated and stuck at home?
11: Yes, yeah, so typically I, I train at Stanford. I'm a student at Stanford and everything around here is, is closed down in the Bay Area, all the pools, everything. Uh, during this, this, these last couple weeks, we've been able to swim in some backyard pools, um, just uh, very small groups. And uh, really, I'm not doing anything uh, besides staying in, in my apartment, trying to stay in shape the best I can. but. Uh, Pretty much doing what what everyone else is hunkering down.
3: You know, I, I mean, I, I think exercise is such a big part of, of staying mentally and physically healthy, especially when people are hunkered down. Not just for adults, but for kids too. I have three kids, and I think the reason they're watching this town hall tonight is because they knew you were going to be on, not not for me, <laughs> but to the millions of kids out there who, who don't have sports as an outlet right now. Katie, uh, what advice do you give them about staying active?
11: yeah it's it's very important and it's it's tricky when pools close and you maybe can't participate in team sports and and do things with other people so I was I was doing a video call with some swimmers from back home yesterday and I can tell that it's it's tough and they're facing this new challenge but I think I would encourage everyone to set some goals for themselves whether it's in exercise or setting goals for the future for when they get to go back and start competing again or practicing and uh, just, just find things outside of, of your normal routine to give, give a shot and, and do something different. I'm probably going to be doing different, different kinds of workouts to try to stay in shape during this period of time and I encourage everyone to, to do their best with that too. Do
3: you think you'll I mean, have a hard time rebounding or will you, do you think you'll be able to get back to your, to your level of, of, of fitness?
11: I think I'll be able to get back there pretty quickly. I think, um, you know, we're all facing the same uncertainty of we don't know when things will be back to normal and what that new normal will look like. But I think once, once we can start, start kind of knowing what that will look like and when the Olympics will exactly be, we can get back into hard training and work towards Tokyo.
2: You're obviously highly a highly motivated person. I didn't work out today at home because I convinced myself that I had too much else to do, even though I really didn't do anything else. So, how do you stay motivated? I mean, how wh- how do you force yourself to do it?
11: Well, you know, my my goals aren't changing. I still have goals that I want to achieve, goals that I was hoping to achieve this summer, but. I'm perfectly fine with putting those on the back burner for next year and and staying committed towards those goals. I think uh, goal setting has been crucial for me and that's what keeps me so motivated every day to get out of bed and and work out hard and and I want to represent Team USA next year and and do it really well. I think it's gonna be really cool if if everything comes together hopefully that you know hopefully we can can continue to fight this disease and um, reduce, reduce the spread and be able to compete in Tokyo. But I think when we get there, it's going to be a, a true celebration of the world being able to come together again.
2: Yeah. Uh, Katie Ledecky, I appreciate all you do and uh, thanks for being thank with you. us tonight. And best of, uh, best thank of you. luck. Thank you.
11: Thanks for keeping right. us informed.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> up next, something to uh, cheer all our spirits, our moment of hope. We'll be right back.
1: After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned.
2: We hope tonight has been an educational experience that used facts to cut through fear and myth. Before we go, though, we want to leave you with this moment of hope, two uh, stories, actually. The first, the antidote to so many goodbyes that people have had to say far too early to loved ones.
3: Well, instead, tonight, we're presenting you with this, a hello. Now, as you know, visitors are not allowed in many hospitals as things go now. That goes as well for the families of newborns. Of course, if you're a grandparent or if you know a grandparent, then you know that nothing Absolutely nothing can keep a grandparent from seeing their first grandchild. According to an NBC 10 in Boston, that's what happened at a hospital outside the city. The birthing unit at North Shore Medical Center is on the ground floor. And that gave the grandparents of an adorable little girl the ability to meet her through the window also gave them an opportunity to uh, go outside and take a walk. In fact, grandparents from both sides of the family were able to walk to the window and see their grandchild. Anderson, you'll notice they're still practicing their social distancing. (laughs) We wanna congratulate them.
2: I love that they brought a ladder too so they can spend (laughs) more time. Um, We also have one more moment of hope tonight. Nurses at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio had left hopeful messages for man and their care. They wrote them on the glass door of his room. When he left, the nurses found that the man had left a note of his own on the door. I wanna read the note to you in full because it needs to be heard. I'm quoting what he wrote. He said, quote, this window has been the most impactful window in my life. On days when I watched you work hard to keep me and others alive, unable to thank you for the time that you poured into me, and although I will probably never get the chance to pour that same love and support into you, I want you to know that I think you are all rock stars. I watched some of you have good nights and some bad nights, but what was consistent every night was that you care for people. Today, I leave this ICU a changed person, hopefully for the better, not only because of your medical healing and God's direction and guidance, but with the fact of knowing that there are such wonderful people dedicated to the care and concern of others. God bless each of you. God bless doctors and nurses and X-ray technicians and uh, medical Therapists technicians. And, yeah, uh, yeah there's so many people working uh, for uh, for to keep all of us alive.
3: I mean, you know, I, I don't think I've, been, I've seen anything quite like this. This sort of outpouring of gratitude—it's really pretty incredible, Anderson. I mean, you, you think about it: these doctors and nurses that are on the front lines, many of them who don't have personal pre- protective equipment, they don't stay home. They say, "I'm still showing up to work every day." This week, as you know, Anderson, New York's uh, Governor Cuomo, he asked for volunteers to help with the fight. 40,000 healthcare workers, including students and retirees, they answered that call. Wow. All All of that, when you hear that, makes what we do as individuals, I think, so important. And right now, there are millions of Americans who are heeding the guidance to stay home, living, I realize, with both the fear of the virus and the worry about their own economic future, but they're still doing their part. The world's different now than it was last month or even last week for that matter. But you know, Anderson, I think these are the moments where our humanity really does shine through when we're challenged like this.
2: Yeah, it's a cliche, but it really is true. We are all in this together. Sanjay, thank you. Please stay safe, be careful. Uh, Thanks also to Dr. Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates who joined us and also to all of you who wrote in with your questions and to everyone who joined us tonight. Be careful, be safe. We are all in this together.
1: And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts.